0: Uh, I want to welcome you all here. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, I want to give a special welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here. We are in this series that we're calling Undivided because it's about uh, acquiring a congruity uh, in our soul, a peace, a centered, centeredness, a singularity of focus in a world that's so divided and so fragmented. Uh, and so this week we're going to be talking about the God Mammon uh, and how things fragment our soul. So let's start this way. Watch and listen. Of stuff. It's all mine. I've spent a lot of time over the years earning and collecting and sorting and cleaning and repairing and replacing my beautiful stuff. I can't understand how this gaping hole has formed in the center of me with all this stuff to fill it in. I can't understand the emptiness when there's not one open space in my life probably I just need more stuff or better stuff then I won't feel this hunger and this weight pressing on my chest then I'll be satisfied just one thing more just one thing more, that'll do it Terry's poem, I just love her poetry but it expresses what is really a a incredible or maybe the most incredible stronghold in our culture, a demonic principality and power. And we sometimes call it the spirit of capitalism or spirit of greed. In the the paper this morning, St. Paul Pioneer Press, I don't know if any of you saw it, but one of the titles of of the stories was, The Spirit of Spending Has Returned. And that is good news economically, but we as kingdom people have got to be wondering about that. The spirit of spending has returned, and they're looking at signs of optimism that people are going to uh, raid the malls and stores this holiday season like they didn't last year. The spirit of spending has returned. There is a spirit of spending, a spirit of consuming. We are brainwashed to crave stuff, and we're brainwashed to call the stuff we crave our stuff, mine. It's mine. It's a principality and power that is dominant in this culture. We spend a lot of time earning and collecting and sorting and cleaning and replacing and repairing mine. And yet there is, as many of us know firsthand, a gaping hole in the center of our being. It may be a little bit puzzling to us because we were promised, this is part of the brainwashing, that, that if you just acquired the right stuff, the best stuff, enough stuff, well then, then you'd be satisfied. And it never seems to pan out. There is, even when we're able to be surrounded by a lot of stuff, this certain emptiness on the inside, this, what Terry said, called a pressure, a subtle pressure on our chest, a kind of anxiety that is there. With that stuff comes this sort of anxiety. We bought the lie and it didn't pan out. But if we continue to believe the lie, then we think that the emptiness or the pressure can be solved by just getting one more thing, one more beautiful thing. Surely if I get that or this or something better, something newer, something improved, well, that's going to help. And the lie just goes on and on and on and on. Now, there's a demonic force behind that. That's the principality of power. It's one that Jesus identifies as mammon. The pictures that we saw uh, on on the screen a moment ago, those are all various depictions of this god mammon. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that that beast a little bit later on. But because this is a major stronghold in our culture, we here at the Church spend quite a bit of time talking about it. We, 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 over and over again, uh, talk about uh, how, how, how much the Bible emphasizes the sin of greed. One of the most frequently mentioned, most strongly emphasized sins in the Bible. And greed is simply a matter of hoarding more than you need when there's others who have less than they need. So we talk about that a lot. We talk about God's heart for the poor and how serving the poor is a high kingdom priority. We talk about the importance of, of reflecting God's outrageously generous character by living lives of outrageous generosity. We talk about that a lot. And we'll continue to do so. Because the reality is that one of the number one sins in the Bible is one of the most neglected sins in the American church. One of the ones that we're most guilty of. And what's really sad is that most folks don't even realize it. We're very aware of other people's sins, but this tree trunk sticking out of our eyes, not so much. And so we return to this quite frequently. But not this morning. We're in the middle of this series, Undivided, and, and we're taking a slightly different approach to everything here. Rather than looking at what God's will might look like in terms of our external life, we're getting to the core of our, of our issues and asking, how do things impact our heart? Uh, not so much about our behaviors and, and, and how to adjust our, our objective outside lives, but, but rather getting in touch with what is going on in the core of our being. So for the first two weeks, we just talked about how the external public focus of our culture, where we tend to value more highly things that are, that, are, that are public, things that others can see, how, we talked about how that fragments us. It takes us out of our center. We become desensitized to our spirit and to the Spirit of God. Uh, We have trouble being in touch with what is really going on in our inner being And so part of what we want to do in this series is to help us learn how to listen to the pain in our soul Listen to the crying children in our soul And then last week we talked about how our thinking about time and our relationship with time how that fragments us How that pulls us out of the center it pulls us out of the present moment and uh Uh, And so before we start talking about how to objectively adjust our our, our time and, and be better stewards of our time, we want to look at how it impacts our soul. This morning I want to look at how possessions impact our soul. I want to look at how the way we think about possessions and the relationship we have with possessions, how that impacts us. I'm not so much interested in here and what we should possess or not possess, or do you have too much or too little or anything of of that sort. I want to get to the core issue of how the way we think about possessions and relate to possessions fragments us. And this really gets us to the the, the core issue. Because you can talk about greed and you can talk about the responsibility of the poor all you want, but if our heart is unchanged, it's not likely to do a lot of good. We can talk about having a godly, sim- simplified life and swimming upstream in this culture all we want, but we're not going to have a truly simplified life unless our heart becomes simplified and unitary and focused. So we're looking at how these things impact our heart. I want to start by, by looking at the passage we showed just a few seconds ago on the screen, Luke fourteen thirty three. Jesus says, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Wow! Now I'm sitting up here, uh, and I I own this shirt. I, I bought the shirt. It's my shirt. Uh, my shoes. I bought these shoes, and my pants. I, I own these things. I did buy them. Uh, I was going to say that I, I drove here with my car, and that was true last night. It's not true this morning because I smashed my car up on the way home last night. I got a four-car car crash. It was really nasty and just. Ugh. But I'm alive. Praise God, and and no one was seriously hurt. Uh, so praise God for that. But uh, so no, I don't. I don't have a car. <laughs> uh, I feel even more righteous. My golly, yes. A... <laughs> but it was a junker car, so easy come, easy go. But I did own that car, and I did end up at my house. I have a house. I thank God for that house. But I do think of it as my house. And uh, I've got a drum set downstairs that I own. I got you know a couple thousand books in my library that I own. I own a lot of stuff. Am I a hypocrite? Jesus says if you don't give up everything you have, you can't be uh, a disciple. What about you? Anyone here own anything? <laughs> you guys call yourself Christians. It's just amazing to be. Call yourself Christ- disciples of Jesus, and yet you own all this stuff. What is it? What is Jesus getting at? What is he getting at? Is he saying that we, we are to, to follow him, we need to be homeless and carless and I get clothesless? Uh, You know, what is he getting at here? Now, we've got to be careful, okay? Because here's what would be really easy to do. It'd be easy to say, of course, Jesus doesn't mean that. Oh, that just doesn't make any sense. I don't know what he does mean, but he doesn't mean that. And see, so often we dismiss the radical teachings of Jesus and the entire New Testament because it doesn't line up with our common sense. What we've just got to need to remember is our common sense is jaded. Our common sense is not a good criteria for determining what is true or false. And very frequently, people just dismiss things willy-nilly because it doesn't line with their common sense. That's why, I mean, a lot of things about God don't make sense. we got a a God who's the omnipotent creator of heaven and earth, and he he used that power to get himself crucified. How much sense does that make? You see, it's it's an upside-down kingdom that doesn't always make sense. This is why a lot of people just don't really take seriously the call to love our enemies, all of them, and to not resort to violence. It just doesn't make sense. It sounds stupid. So we maybe don't know what Jesus is saying, but he's certainly not saying that. And in this way, we, we, we end up with a, with, a, with a faith that just fits nicely into our common sense view. And it, all the beauty and all the radical edginess has, has been lost. We don't want to do that. So we've got to take very seriously what Jesus says, unless you give up everything. He's, he's saying something important there. We have to decide what it is. At the same time, we need to take every verse in the Bible, and when we interpret it, we have to read it in the context of the whole. Never just isolate verses and take them out of context. So we want to look at the whole teachings of Jesus, and the whole teachings of the New Testament, and the whole teaching of the Bible as we come to understand this passage. We're not letting our common sense rule things here. We're just letting the whole council of Scripture rule things here. And the minute we do that, we discover that something funky is going on. Something funky is going on. Now, Jesus, when he was talking to the rich young ruler, he told him to go and sell everything he had and give it to the poor. Okay, so he did say that, but that's the only time Jesus ever gave that command to somebody. When he's talking to this other wealthy guy named Zacchaeus, he commends him for having given away half of all he owned to the poor. He doesn't say, hey, cough up the other half. He commends them. He doesn't have the same requirement that he had for the rich young ruler. Jesus, whenever he was traveling around, he stayed in the homes of people, and there's never any indication that he ever uh, re- 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 rebuked someone for having a home that he could stay in. In fact, you get the impression that he rather appreciated his homes. What's going on with that? When Jesus sent out the disciples in, in Luke 10 uh, to do missions work, he says, don't take any extra provisions, any extra clothes, any extra sandals, any extra purse. Just, just have, ha, have what you own uh, and, and trust God for the rest. But that presupposes that they've got some clothing, some provisions, uh, one staff, some shoes. They own some things. Um, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we're to uh, not be like the pagans who chase after and worry about food, shelter, and clothing, but we're to trust God for our food, shelter, and clothing. But that presupposes that we have food, shelter, and clothing. What's going on with this? And this is the kind of thing we find throughout the New Testament. So Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I give away all my possessions to the poor but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, Paul is is stating an extreme example here. Even if I were to give all my possessions to the poor, but I did it without love, I would gain nothing. But that assumes that Paul has possessions to give and assumes that this act, if it was done in love, would have been a great thing, but he's not requiring this of everybody. What's going on here? In fact, if it's wrong to own anything, then aren't you causing the poor to sin by giving them your stuff? Something funky is going on. One of the oddest verses, this is the one that used to bug me a lot, is First Timothy chapter 6. Where Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, amen to that, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, among other things, this passage is saying that it's okay not only to have some stuff, even if you're wealthy, but to enjoy that stuff. What's going on here? Doesn't that seem completely contradictory to what Jesus told us in Luke 14, that you must give up everything you have to be his disciples? How do we put these two things together? Now, what I've learned over the years is that sometimes when you're, when you're dealing with what looks like contradictions in the Bible, sometimes if you'll patiently dig down deeper, you might find a real beautiful revelation. And that's what I want to do here this morning. I want to dig a little deeper. And I think we'll find a very important teaching here if we go through it patiently. Warning, this is one of those messages, it's about to become one of those messages, where you really got to think. Put on your thinking caps, pay attention. I usually don't get into the original language because usually that's not that important. But on this one, we need to. Uh, some things hang on this. So I want to look at Luke fourteen thirty three again. I want to break it down. I want to get into the original Greek. Just pay attention. I don't, sometimes when you hear Greek words, they might like, oh, I just want to tune out. Uh, no, no, th- th- this will pay dividends, I promise you. Jesus says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Let's break it down. The, the phrase give up, apotasso, means to bid farewell, to send away, to surrender or to renounce. So that's not that... that um, uh, insightful. He's just simply, simply saying, unless you renounce everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Let's look at the phrase, everything that you have. And now it gets a little more interesting. It comes from the combination of two words, pas. Pos is the word for all in Greek. And hubarko, which means to possess or to own. Now that phrase has a lot of different applications. Uh, used in a lot of different contexts. But the, the, the root of it is this. It comes from the combination of the, the, the preface hupo, which means under, and arko, which means to begin. Isn't that odd? Under to begin. And so what, what you see here is that the literal connotation of this phrase is that you come under to begin something. You come under to to bring about something new. It has the connotation of coming under to hold up and support something new. That will become very important here in a second. As it's applied to possessions, it's not that we bring into being what we possess. We don't create anything, really. God is the creator of all things. But we do bring into being the new reality that we possess it. Something new is brought into being. We confer on things the, I, I, an identity, a new identity, mine. It belongs to me. So there's the house, it's just a house, but I want the house, I buy the house, and now the house is mine. Now there's a new thing here, it's not just a house, it's my house, and I am upholding that. I'm coming under it and I'm upholding that, giving it the identity of being mine. Jesus uses Hubarco in the present active participle form, in case you were wondering. Present active participle, but that's very important. Because what it means is this. It means this isn't something we do once and then are done with it. It means it's an ongoing activity. As long as the house is mine, I'm coming under and upholding it as mine. There's an ongoing relationship between me and all that I own, an ongoing reality there. See, normally we think that when we buy something, we buy it and it's ours, and then we're done with it. But Jesus says that everything we possess has a, There's an ongoing relationship there, a reality. I'm always in the process of saying mine. I'm not aware of that, of course, but that's what's going on. I am, if you will mining my house. It's mine. Mining. There's a verbal kind of relationship here. I am mining my house, mining my shoes, mining my shirt, mining my drum set, everything that's mine, I'm constantly hubarco. I'm constantly coming under and holding it up even though I'm not aware that I'm doing that. I'm always in the process of conferring an identity on it as mine. So Jesus here, let's bring this together here. Jesus is saying, you can't be in the ongoing process of mining things and think you can be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple if you're doing that. So now let's look at the word "cannot." Cannot. We hear this word "cannot," and we tend to think that Jesus is giving us a rule, because we in the West, as I've said many times, we tend to think of everything in terms of a rule. We we have a legal framework. And we construe, that's the lens through which we read the Bible. Everything is done in a court of law sort of framework. So when we hear Jesus say, you cannot be my disciple, we tend to think he's giving us a rule. Here's the rule. You can't be my disciple and own things. If you own things, I forbid you to be my disciple. You broke one of my rules. That is not at all what is going on here. Not at all. The word cannot comes from the combination of ooh, which means not, and dunamai which is the word for to exercise power, to have an ability, to have strength. It comes from, it's a verbal form of the word dunamis, which means power or authority. We get the word dynamite from it, or the word dynamic, dunamis. So what Jesus is saying here is, unless you renounce the ongoing activity of making a claim to own things, unless you renounce Surrender up that activity, ongoing activity of saying mine, you lack the power to be my disciple. You're not able to be my disciple. He's not giving a rule here, he's describing a reality. Here's simply the fact of the situation if your energy is being spent mining stuff, you won't have the power to be my disciple. So There's something about clinging to stuff, something about saying mine, something about conferring on things uh, an identity of belonging to me. There's something about that that sucks dunamis out of us. It sucks power out of us such that we won't be able to both be doing that and being an authentic disciple of Jesus. That suction power of stuff is what Jesus calls the God mammon. In Luke 16, 13, to go a little deeper here now. He says, No servant can serve two masters. Again, this isn't a rule. This is a reality. The word can is dunamai. Same word. Power and strength. You don't have the power to do this. You don't have the power. It's not, you don't have that, it's not within you to serve two masters. Something about the way we're created, something about the way we're wired is such that uh, we always gravitate towards singular devotion. It's just the way we're created. So you will either you may pretend like you can split your allegiances, but you'll always end up loving the one or despising the other, hating the one or loving the other, uh, being devoted to one and rejecting the other. We're wired for singular devotion. It's built in the nature of creation. And then Jesus specifies what two masters he's talking about here: God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. But it's interesting, the word he uses for money here isn't the normal Greek word for for money, argurion. He uses the word mammon, memonas. And mammon refers to this demonic power of wealth, demonic power of possessions. It's a principality, this is the principality and power behind the pull to say, mine the pull to own, the pull to cling to stuff. There's a demonic power at work, and Jesus calls it mammon. Throughout church history, they've tended to identify this as, uh, as, as just another name for Satan, uh, the one who permeates the entire world. And there's, he pulls us to invest in stuff, purchase stuff, grab onto stuff, and to say, mine. Just like in the garden. In the garden, he says to Eve, hey, you can own that. You can have that. You can get that. I know God says it's not good for you, but I'm here to tell you that he's a liar. It is good for you. It can be yours, that wisdom. Look how good it looks. Look how tasty it looks. It'll make you wise. Get it. The spirit of of spending has come upon us. And see, that same spirit is, is permeating our world today. It's certainly got a strong hold in our culture. And when we succumb to the God mammon, when we succumb to it, then what we get, what we cling to, the minute we do that, it starts sucking dunamis out of us. It starts sucking power out of us. We find that we cannot be an authentic disciple. Jesus spoke truth. If you possess things, you don't have the power to be my disciple. Which means this. If we're going to be authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, it may be the case that you own, you legally own a house, you legally own the car, wonderful. The state recognizes you as the owner of the car, the owner of the house, wonderful. You even enjoy the house and enjoy the car, fine. But you've got to know as a disciple of Jesus Christ that it does not belong to you. It does not belong to you. And the minute you think it does belong to you, the minute you start framing it like that, mine, my precious, it starts sucking life out of you. You may not know it, you may not see it, you may not instantly feel it, but take God at his word, it starts draining you of dunamis, authority, and power. You cannot both be saying mine and be an authentic disciple of Jesus for the same reasons you cannot serve two masters. There's a, it will be pulling you in the direction of serving it and worshiping it. Whatever you claim as yours makes a claim on you. Whatever you claim mine, mammon has just laid a claim on you. You think you own it, but in fact, it owns you. So let's take it one step deeper how does the claim to ownership suck dunamis out of us suck power out of us here, here's here, here's the thing we in the west tend to divide the world in neat categories we're very categorical people we like things in improper slots and so we divide the world up between the spiritual and the secular Spiritual world is there's good and bad spiritual stuff. There's the good spiritual stuff is going to church, saying your prayers, doing good deeds. There's bad spiritual stuff like worshiping Satan and getting involved in debauchery and and being filled with hate. Okay, so there's good spiritual stuff, there's bad spiritual stuff, but everything else we categorize as sort of just normal, just neutral. It's neutral. It's neither here nor there. It's just the physical world. That is a lie, and it's a pernicious lie. The truth is that everything, everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Everything has a spiritual dimension to it, for good or for ill. Our money is not neutral. It is a spiritual reality, and there is a principality and power behind it. That's why Jesus refers to money, not as argurion, the normal word, but as mammonas, mammon. There's a beast behind it. It's not neutral. Everything is caught up in the war zone that we're a part of. Money and all that money can buy has got spiritual tentacles to it. You lay claim to it, and in that instant, it lays claim to you, and it starts sucking life out of you. Spiritual tentacles with little suctions at the end. And the minute they latch on to you, they just start like a leech, just sucking you dry and depleting you of dunamis, the ability to be an authentic follower of Jesus. That is why Jesus, I'll say it once again, uses the present active of participle, of hup- huparco. We don't own things once, rather once we own it, as long as we own it, we're constantly grabbing onto it, and it is constantly grabbing onto us. There's an ongoing spiritual connection between us and all the stuff that we think we own. Every, everything I claim as mine is right now sucking life out of me so far as I'm holding on to it, it has right now got tentacles on me. And, 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 and that's the present reality of it. And Jesus is saying, you can't be involved in that, holding on to it and it holding on to you and think that you're going to have the power to be my disciple. You can think of it this way. Everything has a hidden price tag on it. The price tag has to do with those tentacles. What does it cost you when you say mine? So, for example... To use a rather practical example in my case, let's say you go out looking for a new car. <laughs> this was not on my radar screen 12 hours ago. It is now. A new car. And uh, uh, this car costs a lot of money, because cars always cost a lot of money, but let's assume that you can afford this car. Uh, you know It's within your budget, and so you buy the car. But you've, as a kingdom person, you have to look not just at what does it cost you financially, but what does it cost you? What might it cost you spiritually? Especially if you grab it and say, mine. Now, maybe the car will cost you nothing. It could be the case that you are a mature kingdom person. You know that this car doesn't belong to you. And you know that the car belongs to God. So you know that the car is ultimately to be used for kingdom purposes. And, and you don't grab onto it. And, and so you're willing to loan this car to people who are in need, as I did this morning. Or you're willing to even give the car away if God, God tells you to. And you are genuinely open to that possibility. In that case, there's no extra price tag. The car has no tentacles on you. But it could be the case that there is an extra cost. It could be the case that there's a steep extra cost. Here's a practical way of getting at it. In the older car, it could be that you were really carefree, as I was. I, I love driving junk. Uh, I, I had this car for, for 11 years and, and I, you know, I, I, my poor wife, she, she wanted to get a new one two years ago because it, it was kind of getting embarrassing. Things are falling off all over the place and we got scrapes and all sorts of stuff. Now uh, she's, no, no, she's going to get her wish. How God answers prayers. How strange. <laughs> but, but, you know, but you're carefree with the older car. It didn't matter that much if it got dirty, if it got scraped up, got a bump here or there, no big deal. But maybe with the new car, your attitude's changed. Now you've got to worry quite a bit about whether it gets scraped, whether it gets dirty. Uh, maybe you become a little bit hypervigilant about all of that. You've got to spend time and you've got to spend money protecting it and keeping it clean. You've got to pay more for insurance, you know, just to, to cover all the possibilities that are there. You become hypervigilant. Now you worry about where you park in the parking lot because people might, uh, you know, scrape and nick your car. You know, there are folks uh, who park, it, park their car way in the corner all the time uh, because they want to make sure that nobody touches their car. You know, God bless them, you know, that, that's the priority. But see, that's one more thing you've got to think about. That's one more drain in your life. That's one more anxiety in your life. Yeah. The older car, you didn't have to worry about spilling the coffee or the kids bringing a little bit of mud or, or Johnny putting his gum on the carpet or dropping candy or whatever. But now this new car, this could be a tentacle. This could be an extra cost. You have a heightened awareness of all this. Maybe a hypervigilant awareness of all this. Everyone, when they get in the car, you know, you're getting very carefully. You do not want to spill anything on the carpet. And you used to have such fun driving around with the family and the kids and you'd get popcorn and go to Dairy Queen and you didn't care if a little bit got spilled. You know, you want your kids to learn responsibility for sure, but you weren't hypervigilant about it and you didn't ream anyone out if, if something dropped, dropped on the floor. But now, those family fun days perhaps are gone. Everyone's nervous when they're in that car don't spill anything don't spill anything and if anyone does well now you've, you maybe are paying a price in terms of your relationship because you're clinging now it does, it's taking away the power to be calm and, and peaceful and you ream Johnny out and that maybe hurts the relationship a little bit and maybe you stop taking those family rides because they're just not fun anymore look at the hidden cost the spiritual cost could be the case with the older car you're perfectly happy loaning it to anyone who is in need and even giving away if, if God told you to not with this new car heck no heck no no way are you going to loan that out to any Tom, Dick, or Harry who needs a, a, a car. You know, you've got to make sure that they are responsible. You don't want someone, what if they nick it? What if they get it dirty? What if they spill coffee? What if their little kid puts gum on the carpet? All these things that you've got to think about now. And that could maybe harm some relationships. You can no longer. It's robbed you of the dunamis, of the power to build relationships and advance the kingdom with this car, which is the ultimate purpose for the car. But now you can't do that because you're holding on to it too tightly. Uh, it could be the case that it harms relationships just in terms of how people see you. Look at Hoity Toity driving around in that nice new car. He used to be one of us, but now you know. And so maybe there's a, a way of he used to loan us that car. Now, he hasn't asked us that in a long time, and see that affects relationships. We've got to be aware of the spiritual tentacles that are there, and everything has spiritual tentacles. And it's even possible; it's possible that in the process of buying that car, you harmed your soul man, this is a, a, a good application for me now that I'm going to go out and get a car here one of these days. Uh, Greg Boyd, listen up. Because see, here's the thing. Here's how it could harm your soul. If you purchased that car under the influence of mammon, if you purchased that car because you succumbed to that pervasive influence saying, you can own it, you can have it, it can be yours, you know, it, it, that, that pull to say mine, if you were succumbing to that, then you weren't listening to God. And so in buying the car, it could be the case that you just hardened your soul a little bit. Whatever you do, you get better at doing. And so you just got a little bit better at not listening to God and a little bit better at listening to mammon. You're a little bit more vulnerable now to the pull of the principality and power and a little bit more hardened to the voice of God uh, in your life. It may be that when you went there, you just asked the questions that Americans always ask. Do I want it and can I afford it? That's all we ever ask. That's mammon pulling us. Kingdom people have got to ask one more question, and it's the Trump question: God, do you want me to have this? Where else could this thirty thousand dollars go, or however much you're going to spend on a car? Uh, how would you have me do this? And maybe he would say, "I want you to enjoy the car and use it for kingdom purposes." Fine, no problems, nothing wrong with that. It may be the case that he was saying, "No, no, you can. you don't need that thing." But Mammon is saying, "Oh yes, you do. Look how shiny it is. Look how nice it is, and it only costs this. Look at all the hidden costs." Everything has got tentacles. Everything is spiritual and everything has got tentacles. Every single thing you own, you think you own, makes a claim on you. And it sucks life all out of us if we grab onto it. I sometimes like to picture things this way. Go in prayer, imagine, however you do that, envision every particular thing that you own. And then see these tentacles in the spiritual realm coming out of it like an octopus, and they got suctions at the end. I'm picturing my drum set right now. I like my drum set, okay? But, and, and, but there's these tentacles coming out. Like, you know, it's all over the place. It's a, there's a, it's, everything is potentially demonic, <laughs> like that. So, so picture the tentacles. Picture something precious that you have in your life. Precious. And saying, you can own me, you can own me, but there's all these tentacles. And the minute you say, mine, you just gave it permission to l- l- latch on to you. As long as you're saying you belong to God, it can't find any place to latch on You're protected. And so you can just enjoy the drum set. But the minute you go, mine, it starts just like a leech, just sucking life out of you. And see, I, I, we own so many things. Obviously some much more than others. But all the stuff we own or think we own can suck life out of us. The shoes, for crying out loud. It, and it's an ongoing relationship the shirt, everything. If we're not careful, if we say mine. And see... This explains why I think some very sincere people wonder, where is God? Why don't I feel the life of God? Where's the power of the kingdom? How come, how come uh, you know, I, I, I just don't have the power to overcome this thing in my life? How come I can't ever transform my attitudes? Why aren't I transformed by the renewing of my mind? How come I look the same today as I did 10 years ago? Why, how come I don't look more like Jesus? Where's the capacity to love? Where's all the promises of the kingdom? Where is God? I'm not sure this is even real anymore. And they're sincere, but they wonder, why don't I see the kingdom? And it could very well be that As sincere as your heart is, you're just being sucked dry by a million tentacles stuck to you. All your stuff. And you think it's neutral and it's not neutral. It's sucking the power of the kingdom out of you. Why are we so fragmented? Why do we have a lack of centeredness, singularity, peace in our inner being? It could very well be that we're being pulled in all these different directions because these stupid, blood-sucking, spiritual leeches pulling us in a million different directions. Know the real price. Know the hidden price tag. Now, the answer to this is not to try not to have anything. Although, if God tells you to give away everything, give it away. But that's not the answer for everybody, and even that wouldn't solve the problem because you can't escape the tentacles. You can't escape them. We live in a fallen world that's got tentacles all over it. The solution solution is exorcism. To cast out the spirit of mammon, and not just once, but over and over and over again, this is a, a, the process of taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ. One way you can do it on a regular basis is just to take the things that you think you own before you envision them. And see those tentacles, as I just mentioned a little bit ago. And then you just say, I don't own you, you belong to God. And maybe then picture the tentacles going, ah! And, and they've got to retreat from you. It's like, oh, They burn when you say that. It's like, oh, he's just lost them. I don't own you, drum set. You belong to God. I'll use you as God directs me, but I, I don't own you. Legally, I do. Yeah, legally, but, but, but I don't. Uh, house, I don't own you. Car, I don't own you. So good riddance. Uh, you know, uh, clothes, I don't own you. Everything, hands off. God may allow us to enjoy it, but it's not ours. And just go, th- go through the catalog of all the things you own. Picture the tentacles. Be honest with, uh, have you laid claim to that? does it lay claim to you? And if so, you just say, you belong to God, not me. I let you go. It's kind of a way of exercising all of our possessions. The way I want to end this morning is this. And I encourage you to go through the the disciplines at the end of the chapter uh, in Undivided uh, for this week. Some good stuff that will help you get in touch with with, uh, our owning stuff. But I want to do a corporate exorcism. What do you say? Don't worry. I'm not talking Linda Blair, Greenpeace spitting. Although if that happens, it happens. We'll deal with it. But uh, I, I... I want to do like a liturgical prayer, okay? And here's the thing. I, you know, depending on your background, you maybe like liturgical prayers. Maybe you think they're just sort of ritualistic. But the reality is this. There is a power in unified uh, confession. There really is. When we together, and, you know, you do this on your own individually, but, but, but everything in the kingdom works better when done in numbers, when done in unity. And so I, I'm going to do a call and response sort of prayer here that we'll end with. Uh, when we're done, I ask uh, prayer teams to come up here, and if, if you have any need whatsoever you want to pray through, maybe it's getting rid of some of these tentacles, I don't know. I want you to come forward and receive that prayer. But we'll just stand as we close with this, this exorcism, this, this uh, profession. I'll read the darker, uh, the, the darker words, you read the, the lighter words. And, and as we pray this, don't do it as a ritual. No, this is a reality thing. We are actually doing warfare here, so I want you to say this with passion. I want you to say it with vigor. Invest your being into this. Abba Father, we confess that you are our Lord and Savior and that we are your people, you say. As your people everything alone. But we confess that we have often succumbed to the pull of mammon and have tried to possess our life and the things we own. By your grace and empowering spirit, we release our hold on our life for it belongs to you. We let go of our hold. And all our possessions, for they belong to you. We relinquish our grip on all relationships for they belong to you. By your grace and spirit. We the spirit of Say that one again. Dan, go back. Uh, Okay, let's say it again this time. Put your heart into it. By your grace, empowering spirit, we rebuke the spirit of mammon. Amen. Amen. We cast out the spirit that seduces us to say, Mine. We renounce the spirit that lures us Amen. We revolt against the spirit that leads us into bondage. We sever all spirits Yes. We exercise the spirit that entraps us in false security. Amen. You, Abba Father, are our God, and there is no other. You are our Lord, and you serve no other. You are our Savior, and we will look to no other. You are our life, and we need no other. You are our security, and we find peace in no other. And we all say, for freedom you have set us free, and we commit to standing fast in that freedom. All praise and honor and glory be yours, now and forever. Amen. Let's praise Him. Amen. 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 Yes. Praise God. Praise God. For freedom you have been set free. Walk forth in that freedom. Let nothing take you into bondage. Stay awake. Be aware of the hidden cost and trust in God. Amen. Prayer team, come on up. God bless.